Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. And video, right? We are. Let's do it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and brightest from the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career and life forward. Folks, my guest today, Scott Miller, is a premier thought leader at Franklin Covey, as well as a number one best-selling author, inspiring others to push back their failures, or as he called them, leadership messes. We'll get into that. And Scott has spent over 24 years, that, that makes you a lifer, man, with Franklin Covey, where he started out as a client partner and has worked his way up throughout the company. That's crazy. I mean, that, that's insane. We'll certainly dig into that. And most recently, before he took on his current role as the EVP of thought leadership, Scott was the company's first appointed CMO. And he's followed the footsteps of Stephen Covey, who wrote the highly recognized book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I think that was the first book I read when I came out of college. And one of my mentors literally put that on my lap. And he was like, you are going to read this along with Who Moved My Cheese before we even get yes. started on day one Mr. here. Johnson, yeah. Yeah. And he's continued the legacy of thoughtful leadership with the books he's authored and the podcasts and radio shows that he now hosts. And Scott has over 200, 120 episodes under his belt with Franklin Covey's On Leadership, chart-topping podcast, interviewing authors, business leaders, and even comedians like Bill Engvall, who's pretty damn funny, to hear the unique perspectives on leadership. And that's a long intro, but we're going to get to it. Scott is a people person focused on relationship building and owning your messes in order to empower yourself to do great things. That's we'll true. talk about all that and more. Scott Miller, welcome to the podcast. My honor. No one has ever called out Bill Engvall of my 120 Anytime. plus guests. He actually lives about five doors down from me in Park City, Utah. So that's well, how I know Bill Engvall. Great guy. My dad is a huge fan. So when I kind of, I always talk to my dad about the show. My dad's my number one fan. So whenever I talk to my dad, I tell him what's happening on the show, who I'm having on. And I just dropped that name. My dad's like, oh, I love him. I saw his specials. My dad, it's it's kind of like dirty dad humor. Right? I mean, it's good. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's clean dad humor. Cleanish. Yeah, yeah cleanish. All right. So as I was telling you beforehand, you know, this show was about careers. And I love to take my guests through that journey of someone as successful as yourself, especially spending 24 years within one organization. Yeah. Down and dirty real quick, let's talk about how it started and where you got to where you are today career-wise. Yeah, so I'm 52. I live in Salt Lake City here with my wife and our three sons. They are 6, 8, and 10. I've been out here for about 25 years. Uh, I'm from the East Coast, Orlando, Florida, born and raised in Winter Park, Florida. I've spent four years with the Disney company, the Disney development company. Um, they invited me to leave which is how they do it at Disney. They don't fire you. They invite you to leave because I was a bit of a jackass in my 20s. Technically talented, but, you know, interpersonally a wreck. Sounds so, you know, they fire me. And where does a single Catholic boy from Orlando move? Well, of course, Provo, Utah, where all the Catholics are. Exactly. I'm kidding. There's no Catholics in Utah 25 years ago, right? So I move out here on Christmas Day of 1996. I'm recruited by Dr. Stephen R. Covey, as you mentioned, in the Covey, um, Covey brand. 
been in the firm 25 years, lived in London, Chicago for six years, here in Utah three or four times. Had an amazing career from the front line up to the C-suite. I just, uh, my last stint has been the executive vice president of thought leadership for the company. Along the way, have um, traveled around the world, met literally hundreds of thousands of leaders, some who should not have been leaders, some that are, you know, learning that along the way. But I've written three or four books. I have a um, few more coming out this year, and I'm honored to be here today. Truly, that's, that's awesome. I appreciate that. Let's go back to the early days at Disney, early stages in your career. What was that mistake? I mean, listen, let's let's back it up a little bit. Back then and even now, Disney is a higher, highly desirable company to work yeah. at. Some yeah. people say it's it's kind of the holy grail from a culture standpoint, career building standpoint. What happened there? I mean, who I mean, who were you back in your in your early twenties, early in your career, and how did you how did you mess that up? Yeah, I think. Um, uh, you know, a lot of things contributed, right? I was a bit gossipy. I didn't take responsibility for my actions. I didn't apologize for things. I was a bit arrogant. I was technically hardworking and quite, you know, talented from the probably the, the IQ side. Just my, my my EQ skills were low. I was a bit of a train wreck. And, and Disney's all about culture. And um, I didn't do anything unethical or moral per se. I just was young and immature. And Learned a lot. I had a great opportunity. Learned a ton about quality experience and customer service and, and high standards. I speak very fondly of the Disney company. It was a great ride. Kind of wrong fit, wrong culture, right? Been there. It's okay. Yeah, I mean, it, do, it, it doesn't always work out. So what lesson would you give some younger folks earlier in their career that you would take away from Disney? Don't use your corporate credit card to buy personal things. And we're not going to ask what the personal things were. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Even if your plan is to reimburse it, don't put personal expenses on your corporate credit card. How's that? There we go. That That's a life lesson for everybody. Now let's fast forward. Well, we're going to fast hey, forward. Oh, you breeze past that pretty quickly, Adam. I love it. <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to listen. I've been there, man. I, I've, I've, I've abused and abused expense accounts. I get it. That's a that's a conversation for uh, a late night version of the of the podcast. But, you know, something that's absolutely crazy in this day and age is the the idea of someone being a lifer you know 24 yeah. years at a, at a company yeah. um were there were there opportunities along the way in your tenure in the last almost quarter of a century that makes you feel old quarter of a century at franklin covey um yeah. where you've had opportunities or a desire to look elsewhere outside the organization well no question you know i'm 52 so you know technically i'm not a baby boomer but i'm kind of a cusper right there from Gen X or so. My father worked at Lockheed Martin, the defense contractor, for 33 years. So I'm guessing subconsciously there was a bit of that in me. My brother, who's older than me, has had probably seven different careers. So I don't, it wasn't a family thing right. per se. It's not in the DNA. You know? Yeah, when you, not necessarily, I guess maybe subconsciously, but you know, when you find a great culture and a great company where you're valued and you're paid well and you're respected, there's opportunity and you feel appreciated, you stay. Um, you know, mainly the reason I stay is because people don't quit leaders who love them. People quit bad jobs. Well, they really don't quit bad jobs. They quit bad bosses in corrupt cultures. But my CEO loves me, and he's cultivated me throughout my entire career. So I've had lots of opportunity. I will leave at some point. I have lots of opportunity writing books and podcasting and things. But I stay because it's an ethical, honest culture where um, I fit. I love that. And I talk about that all the time. Culture, when I talk about culture, it's really how an employee feels valued. They feel valued that they're making a contribution with an organization. They feel that they have a clear and defined path, that career path forward, and they're being compensated well. And ultimately, as you said, Scott, they really just enjoy working there. And they don't have that desire to look elsewhere because they're being fulfilled. 
Now, I mean, some folks say that the younger generation right now, they're a little bit job hoppy. And the question I have there, does that have to do with kind of this generation or are these companies in this day and age just not fulfilling that true obligation that you and I just spoke about? I think it's both. I think it's rare, but ideal that you work for an organization where you can fulfill your entire career journey. I have no regrets. That's I mean, very I've true. Had, I've had 12 different careers inside my now just shy of 25 years at Franklin Covey, 12 distinct careers, chief marketing officer, EVP of thought leadership, sales leader, sales manager, general manager, lots of very different. So you've careers. touched it all. You've touched all the aspects of the I organization. Would, because the company was nimble enough, agile enough, and invested enough in me to help me build my career. Now, the average tenure for someone is like three years now because they can't usually build their career inside a company. That's a fantastic point. And there's lots of companies that are just too rigid for whatever reason, their processes, whatever that leadership paralysis is where they're not recognizing, hey, this is a great employee. They have lots of different skill sets, hard skills, soft skills that can migrate within the organizations. Why don't we create roles for them if they're raising their hands, Scott, and they're raising their hands and listen, I fulfilled this role. I'm not feeling it anymore. I see an opportunity to do X, Y, and Z. Identify the white space opportunity. Why are some companies hesitant to do that? Well, I think I would address both sides of that. You know, some companies can't. They're not big enough, right? They're just, yeah. they, they can't keep you and, and you should move on and maybe come back later on. So I don't think every organization is misaligned. I do think a lot of organizations fall into the trap of spending more time recruiting than they do retaining. But I'd say it's the leader's first role. Your job as a leader is to both recruit and retain quality talent. And by retaining it, you may have to do something different or create different opportunities. I also think there's responsibility on the side of the employee. I think generationally, the younger generation, X, Y, and Z, and so on, is um, they don't follow the law of the harvest. And the law of the harvest is there's a time to plant and there's a time to harvest. And I think oftentimes people that are a little bit younger are a little impulsive and impetuous and I'm not saying you have to earn your stripes, right? Like going through the, the hazing yeah, process is stupid, right? But I think there's a time to harvest and a time to plant. And I think too often in careers, people harvest, try to harvest too soon. That's interesting. And, I, and I'm a frontline recruiter. I mean, I hear it all the time from candidates that are just jumpy. They're not getting what they want there. They're not putting in the time. I mean, I ask them that. I try to understand their motivation for leaving and really understanding if they're not being fulfilled. And some of them are just, it's, it's, it's instant gratification. They need that next title. They need that jump immediately. And again, that works on both sides. They it really does. Are. And I think, you know, some people, you know, should have 15 jobs in their career. Some, some might have, you know, six jobs like me in the same company, or in my case, 12 jobs. Every person is different. The grass isn't always greener. I mean, you know, I, I, I might've been able to earn more money somewhere else. I, you know, I've earned a really great living and the company's been phenomenal to me, but you know, there's a thing called the emotional paycheck. There's a thing called the financial paycheck. There's a thing called the intellectual paycheck, right? A rapport paycheck. I mean, not everybody's professional values are the same. Not everybody is Nor should they be. a ton of money, right? So you got to be really in touch with what are your values? What do you need? And can this employer give it to you or not at this stage of your career? Yeah, no, absolutely. This is really sound advice. So shifting back a little bit, I mean, you've had a ton of diverse roles. I mean, you listed them through there and we're not going to go back to them. But what really inspired you to start building out this legacy of being a thought leader? Well, so you can't call yourself a thought leader, right? You, have right, to you can't call yourself a guru. You can't, yes, other people yeah. call you a thought leader. Yeah, exactly. You know, I had a pivotal moment. I was on my podcast interviewing Stephen M. R. Covey. This is Dr. Covey's oldest son. He wrote a book a decade ago called The Speed of Trust. Phenomenal book. 13 Behaviors of High Trust People. 
I highly recommend this book. And the book sold, you know, 3 million copies. And I said to Stephen M. R. Covey, hey, your dad was Stephen Covey, 50 million books, world famous person. Did you ever feel the need to write a book prior to this one? He said, you know, I did it because I had nothing to say. And then he said, until I did. And I'm literally on the set as the interviewing thinking, oh my gosh, I've never had anything to say, but now I do. So I wrote this book called Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. Sold 40,000 copies in the first year, number one on Amazon, won a bunch of awards. I'm now writing Marketing Mess to Brand Success, Job Mess to Career Success, a whole line of them. I think you got something here with that title, it works. I think so, all right? I mean, there's nine, there's nine in development right now. I think I realized that in life, there's kind of two kinds of professionals. And I learned this from David Epstein, he wrote the book called Range, R-A-N-G-E. And David says, you know what, in professions, there's specialists and there's generalists. And specialists are like chemical engineers, patent attorneys, physicians, that kind of stuff, right? They know what they're gonna do coming out of college, they go and they do it. And they, they have, you know, big college debt, but they're in it immediately. Mm-hmm. And then there are the rest of us, the other 50, 60% that are kind of jealous of the specialist. We're generalists. And, you know, we're in project management, we're in sales, we're in leadership, we're all kinds of things. And we usually have bit late bloomers, but we come into ourselves in our sort of mid forties and then our fifties and sixties, we're the CEOs, we're the board members, right, of companies. And so I was a generalist. And when I became a generalist, I realized I have so much experience in sales, sales leadership, marketing, at the executive C-suite level, I'm going to start writing and start sharing my thoughts. And that's kind of how I got into it. That, that's awesome. And you talk Long about, answer, sorry. No, I love it. And, you, you know, we talk about mentorship on the show. So two part here, right? Like who, who has been your favorite mentor? And what was that key lesson that you learned from them that you take forward with you? Gosh, I have lots of them. Seth Godin is a good friend of mine. Everyone knows him, who yeah. Seth Godin is. Seth taught me the difference between being reckless and being fearless. And I often confuse the two. I thought I was being fearless with my brand, other people's emotions, but I was really being reckless. And so I'm much more deliberate now about checking myself. Am I being fearless or am I being reckless? And what is that subtle difference? Oh, I don't say everything on my mind. <laughs> it's a general because I have a thought about <laughs> what you're wearing or you're grooming or what you say. I don't have to speak it all the time. Does that because come with, I think with, it doesn't mean I need to speak it. Does that come with experience and age? <laughs> that well, filter? not for a lot, not for a lot of people. Um, Sometimes it know, gets don't, worse. Don't, don't equate age with wisdom, right? By any stretch. And then you have you have some some very loved older relatives, some senior citizens, and I'm not trying to group all senior citizens together. Where literally their filter goes out the window, right? Like, and you're like, what? Like, do you oh, just it's feel a bell no curve. repercussions? It's a yeah, bell exactly. curve. I'm coming to that. I'm coming to that. I got about 15 more years of studying. No. Yeah, but I know. I don't think it came with wisdom. I think it came with people sitting me down, like Seth Godin, and saying, Radical "Don't candidate. say that. Don't do that. Be more deliberate. Be more thoughtful. Don't be less impulsive, less impetuous." I'm a fairly impulsive person, and so I've become more deliberate. I've also realized that you know words have consequences, and so I've been. I'm still fearless, very fearless. I mean, you're but I'm less. Even- I'm less reckless. You're in an interesting position where you're surrounded by so many experts, but a lot of young folks, even folks at any age, have a, have have difficulties finding a mentor. What's some advice that you would give for somebody to find a mentor? Yeah. Oh, friend up. I mean, this is something, if you would ask me, what is the biggest contributor to my success with my personal income, with my titles, with my books, 
it has been I've always deliberately friended up. In my 20s, my friends were 40. In my 40s, my friends were 60s. I'm 50, my friends are 75. I've always friended up. Smarter, wealthier, more educated, more traveled, more culture, more bankruptcies, more everybody has more experience and just sucked the life out of them. Now, some people, when they hear that, they think that's maniacal. I think it's smart. These are not unwise people. And now these people that were helping me my whole life, I'm now helping them, right? I'm helping them run their podcast. I'm helping them publish their book. It's the circle of life. No, it's fantastic. And and, and in that same vein, you know, you talk a lot about the importance of giving back, you know, particularly as you've developed later in your career. I mean, you literally just mentioned it. What is your favorite medium, you know, to to connect with people and, and really give back? I mean, is it the podcast? Is it the books? Or is it kind of like an amalgamation of all of them? I mean, yeah, is there cool. one channel in particular? It's all of it. Like you, I'm privileged to host this podcast. It's now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast by distribution and subscription called On Leadership. I love to feature people on it and then post the heck out of it. Obviously, my LinkedIn is uh, is hopefully about lifting others up and mentioning, you know, some of the things that I'm doing. Um, lots of different forums, not one medium at all. I think it's about either you have a scarcity mentality or you have a, an abundance mentality. Either you want to be right or you want to do what's right. And, and, and as I have matured, I have the spotlight a little less focused on me and a little more focused on others. Well, that's what I love about podcasting, too. For me, it's my canvas to shine a light on others. I set the stage. Yeah. I'm, I'm the director and they're the stars. I'm just directing Damn straight. it. Up. I'm, Damn I'm moving. I am. That's right. There, you're the star here. So let's talk about the the podcast on leadership. And you talk to some extremely powerful industry leaders and overall just incredibly tenacious people. What made you decide that this was a program that you wanted to create? And when you set to create this, what was that value you wanted people to take away from? So I'm going to tell you the truth. Uh, I left being the chief marketing officer of Franklin Covey and became the EVP of Thought Leadership. I'm sitting in the office one day with our CEO and chairman. And he's very, very wise, very smart guy. He says to me, I think we ought to have a Franklin Covey channel. And I'm thinking channel like ABC, NBC, CBS, channel like like delivery channel, channel like on the radio. We like what kind of channel? It's like, I don't know. Figure it out. So we went out and we started hosting this podcast. We called up all of our friends, major celebrities and authors, the CEOs, and it got us yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good one. And you've had, I mean, listen, you've had on some giant names. I mean, the guy Kawasaki, Seth Godin, who you talked about. But there was one episode that changed your life, speaking to um, to Eric Barker. What was, oh, it yes. about, what was it about that conversation? And specifically, let's talk about that moment. Okay, I got to have two minutes. Eric Barker is a social scientist. He wrote a book called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. It basically dispels a lot of the common myths, right? Early bird gets the worm, nice guys finish last. And in this interview, he talked about the power of knowing your story, knowing your story. Like, what does that even mean? Like, that, that's like Reiki or sound bowl. I, what, what is that? I don't even know what that is. I'm not, I'm not a Reiki kind of guy. So I went home and I said to my wife, have you ever told yourself your story? She's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I don't know. This guy told me that. Have you ever told yourself your story? I'm like, yeah, I'm tired of going to bed. I get out of bed in this, in this bedroom. I come into the kitchen. I pull out a wire whisk at 1030 at night. I'm in my plaid Ralph Lauren boxer shorts. I walk into this room. This is the salon in our home. We have a large English home. And I walk around at the age of 49. And for the first time in my life, I tell myself my story out loud. Who I am, how old I am, where I was raised, all my fears, all my concerns, all my triumphs. Out loud, I interview myself Larry King style with a whisk and my boxer shorts. And it was in this room. For a half an hour, I just went through my entire life and I shared all the stories that have been told about me 
that weren't true. All the lies told about me, all the truths told about me. And I decided in this room what I was going to carry forward and what I was going to leave behind. 49. I'm in the C-suite, making second, seven figures a year, beautiful family, great life. But I decided, you know what? I'm a stutterer. I, I am a stutterer. I have a, I have a diagnosed stutter. I've been in speech therapy, speech pathology my whole life, braces multiple times, headgear retainers. I said, you know what? I'm going to get a radio program. The next morning, called up iHeartRadio, landed a radio program. So you know what? I'm going to write a book. I've written a book. Wrote three books since then. It was just by like telling myself my story and deciding what is true and what is no longer going to be true that was transformational, and it came from Eric Parker. I love it. That's fantastic. And it's, and it's interesting that you talk about you know a, a speech impediment. I mean, I grew up till the age of 10 with a terrible lisp, and it took me years of therapy to really learn, you know, how to take my tip of my tongue and put it into the roof of my mouth. And that was something that I was bullied about. And that was something that, that really affected, you know, me as a, when I was younger and I made it a point to, to, to fix it. And that's something that's haunted me. And I always, I'm very conscious of it, you know, especially as a podcaster, right. someone right. whose voice. And it's interesting too, because I'm always conscious about my voice. I've never really liked it. I mean, now I'm working on a little bit of a cold, but always a little sinusy, but that's something we think about. And we, and we think about, but other people don't hear it the same way that we do. They don't analyze it that. So congratulations on your courage, your vulnerability, your humility. That's why your podcast is so popular is because um, your vulnerability, it, it just, you know, brings people in. Vulnerability opens up everything. I'm not even trying to say cliche here, but it wasn't until, it wasn't until I was 35 years old and I got fired by Gary Vaynerchuk and I thought my life was coming to an end. And I had to reinvent my career when I said, I'm going to be open and vulnerable and talk about my journey. Everything else opened up. Because vulnerability leads to, honestly, I, it leaded to acceptance. I took responsibility and I moved forward with it. But we're not we're not going to dwell on that. So back to podcasting. I want to get into a little bit more from a technical aspect. Um, who is your interviewing kind of like hero? Who is on your Mount Rushmore when you look at yeah. people who inspire you from an interviewing skill set, from their technique, from their personality, from their style? Who is it for you, Scott? Larry King. I mean, Larry King. Larry King actually endorsed my next book called Master Mentors. He wrote the um, intro for it. Isn't that amazing? Like for me, my goal is to have Howard Stern endorse my book one day. Howard Stern is my interviewing master. In my opinion, in modern day and age, in his, yeah. in his, in his format, his open format on SiriusXM, there's yeah. no better interview because it's a conversation. And he I think you're right. Up, he I he think opens up the guests. He opened, I don't know if you heard the one he had Hillary Clinton on a couple of months ago, but no. he, 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 he prompted Hillary to tell the love story of how Hillary and Bill met in college, in law school. And it, it just takes you back before everything. Huh. And, it, and it's just fantastic. And same thing with Tom Brady. He had an amazing conversation preseason with Tom Brady. I highly recommend those two episodes wow, okay. from a podcaster masterclass in interviewing. So we get, yeah. we, we digress there. So how, what are some of the, listen, audience building is different for folks that have a tremendous guest roster that has an innate built-in audience yeah. there but like but an up-and-coming podcast you're like how do you build an audience what are some tips yeah i think the same advice i would give uh, or different advice from the same person seth godin you know seth Godin wrote this book this is marketing about a year and a half ago and he talks about the smallest viable market i love this term go buy seth godin's book the smallest viable market and, he, and it's kind of counterintuitive right don't boil the ocean who is your first listener is your mom great who is your second listener? It's your aunt. Great. Who is your third, your fourth, your fifth? Don't try to boil the ocean. 
get really clear on people who you should be talking to, who care about you. Don't water ski. Don't even like snorkel, like scuba dive. Who is your smallest viable market? Get super clear on who those people are and go after them tenaciously. Don't try to water ski across 5 million people. If it's redheads that live in Alabama that like lattes, figure that out, right? And it will grow with the right people over time. Biggest isn't best, right? I mean, more is not better. Not, not, every, not everyone's going to be Joe Rogan. Not everyone's going to be serial NPR. You're not going to be that. You have to you have to find your niche and focus on it. So what's that tip that you give any new podcaster? I mean, listen, I forgot what the stat is. I think it's like 60 plus percent of all podcasts don't make it past 10 episodes. I mean, there's a half a billion of them out there and, yeah. uh, and so many of them yeah. fail there. I mean, what's that tip that you give to any aspiring podcaster? Well, I think a couple of things. First is that that first thing I said is, right, you know, what is your smallest viable market and get really clear on them? You know, how are you differentiating? Right. Like, what, what, why should someone care? I love this. I host a, a, a program on iHeartRadio called Great Life, Great Career. And the advice that the broadcaster gave me is, you know, you're successful when people pull up into the parking lot and they're listening to you and they don't get out of the car. So that's what you're always doing. Right. You're thinking about how do I keep them for 30 more seconds, 40 more seconds? And, and to be thinking about that, that was a good tip for me. Right. Is how do you ask great questions. Have you done your preparation? I, I think one of the things, if you're going to have a podcast where you interview, I read a phenomenal book called A Curious Mind by the famous producer, movie producer, Brian Grazier. And he talks about preparation. It's a great book where Isaac Asimov, the famous scientist, got up and walked out of an interview with the famous producer, Brian Grazier from Imagine Entertainment, because Brian Grazier hadn't done his research properly. Do your homework. So do your homework read their book cover to cover, ask thoughtful questions, and then they will recommend you to their friends. You know what? Adam was a great interviewer. Go on his program. He's a class app. That's how you build a business. It's, absolutely, it's the same. And it's the same thing with recruiting too. I mean, I talk about with candidates and, and hiring managers. You got to do your research. You got to do your prep. Shifting gears a little bit. Let's talk about Dr. Covey. And he's no longer with us, but he left a powerful legacy in his literature and in great leaders like yourself. Again, I love talking about this. Like, that if you were going to get a tattooed on your arm yeah. right here, what is that golden yeah. piece of advice from Dr. Covey that you take with you? There's a difference between being efficient and being effective. The book he wrote was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I'm a very efficient person. I get things done. I move things along. I rush things. I can mow the lawn, rake the yard, wash the car by 6 a.m. That's fine. But it's people like me that are highly efficient when we take that efficiency and we try to move it into our relationships. You cannot be efficient with people. You must be effective. He said with people, fast is slow, and slow is fast. So if you are an efficient person like I am, where your hallmark is you get shit done, pardon the language, you may need to compartmentalize that. And when you're working with people, with your family, with your employees, you've got to slow down and move into an effectiveness mindset. I think that's tremendous. And that leads us to talking about leadership. I mean, that's that's your forte right there. And it's that balance, right? The leader needs, you have your checklist, you have your to-do, you have those tactical items, but people aren't tactical items. And you have to be mindful and thoughtful. And it's hard. You have to switch. You have to have that switch in your head where you could go from tactics you to You do, people. nimbly, right? Maybe like hour by hour. Let me tell you, people are not an organization's most valuable asset. That is not true. I'm debunking that human resource myth. Let's dig into it that. It is the relationships between those people that are your company's competitive advantage. Because you can copy and steal 
everything. Supply chain, vendors, go-to-market strategy, pricing structures, margins. You cannot copy or steal how Adam and Scott get along. Compliment, forgive, pre-forgive each other for future slights and such. As a leader, cultivating relationships and giving people feedback on their blind spots is your biggest contribution. In modern day management, who do you see doing this well? Which leaders? Are there any that stand out to you? Um, you know, I, I could I could probably give some names. He wouldn't recognize the names. They might be even mid-level managers, right? Even doesn't yeah. take a doesn't take a celebrity CEO to know that relationships are your key asset. Um, I have lots of names. I mean, I think Stephanie McMahon. She's the chief brand officer at WWE. She's a friend of mine. I think she's a master at authentic relationships. I interviewed I've been watching her. her. I've been watching her career, and yeah. not just in the ring, you know, but really, she's a tremendous Amazing. leader. Amazing, yeah. authentic leader. I think she puts people first. She's the chief brand officer, but she understands she's actually the chief recruitment officer, right? Because the brand and the people are why people choose to stay at WWE. I, I would say Stephanie McMahon's at the top. That's a good one. She's on my list. I'm going to put, um, she's she's now moved on to my, I have, I have a dream guest list that I keep on my phone. You know here. what? You send me an email and I'll hook you up with Stephanie McMahon. That's tremendous. I, I think love John it. Maxwell, the famous leadership author, John Maxwell is the real deal. His whole life is how can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I make your life better? And he understands that relationships are everything. And Gary Vee, I mean, I got to work for Gary Vee. I don't know how deep you, you know of Gary Vee, but he takes that to heart and he takes, he takes every issue and he really truly believes that any personnel issue in his company is his responsibility as a leader and he per, puts it first and foremost. And, and I love it. So talk about the book a little bit. Um, Management, Master Leadership Success. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, but why don't people own their messes, man? Like, what is it? Well, I think people are, you know, living own a fantasy shit. life. I mean, I, I think here's the premise. Everybody's got a mess. And everybody knows your messes, right? Everybody knows and is talking about them. Everybody can guess your credit score to the closest 20 points. Everybody knows who's straight and gay. Everybody knows whose marriage is on the rocks. These aren't secrets anymore. Our lives are fairly public. And so as a leader... I think it's your job to own your mess because everybody's talking about it anyway. Because as a leader, when you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs. And it holds you back because you're, you're, you're using so much energy and effort to keep that it's repressed. It's true. You learn more from your messes than you do your successes. And people will learn more from your messes. As a leader, show some vulnerability. Gather your team around and say, you know what? Every month I'm going to share with you the biggest messes of my career interpersonally, personally, you name it. And I want you to learn from them so that you can kind of walk around that pothole, right? Jump across that fire. You will build more loyalty and more love and respect by being vulnerable and transparent about your own messes than you will trying to hide them or protect them. People want to relate to their leaders. You show that you're human, that you're fallible. And I think we all are. No one's The perfect. new style of leadership. Oh, it's, it's, it's tremendous there. Could, could we talk about... Can we talk about the C word? Can we talk about COVID? Can we, can we sure, talk about COVID? <laughs> you didn't know where I was going with that one. No, it's a, I no set idea. up the Howard Stern fan, but I don't, I don't go in that direction here. Um, yeah. and, and leadership, leaders, during the last nine months, things that leaders did, things that they say are going to define them and the future of their company for years to come. How they respond, how they react, 
what they do, how they treat their employees is what's going to happen here. And the mindset is crazy. Like, and we talk about what have you seen like leaders adapting, shifting the good, the bad, the ugly. I mean, it, that core attribute that is making some of these leaders shine. You Watch just out. said it. Okay. Shows over them. <laughs> this market is going to turn around. We don't know if it's going to be a V or a K or a W recovery. We have hockey no idea stick. really. I like the hockey stick. Hockey stick. Let's pray for that. The Wu-Tang. But, There's a Wu-Tang curve, right? <laughs> I've, I've heard of the group, not I've heard of the economic theory. I just made it up. People are going to quit your company or stay with your company based on how their leader has treated them during COVID. Because right now, everybody is hostage. There are no options, by and large. But they're going to become options. And if you don't think your people are starting to be recruited by your competition, you're wrong in your sleep. 100%. It's all coming out, right? Every company is starting to look at how they're going to build up and, and, and really bulwark their workforce. Leaders need to check in, not check on. And that's a subtle difference. People need to know you care about them. People need to know that you're concerned, that you also have kids running around on your Zoom calls, and you've got bills you can't pay, and a mother-in-law who's got COVID, and that you're concerned. People want to be able to relate to you. So leadership has never been more important than right now. Because come April, come May, come whenever the vaccine you know, passes the efficacy test and people start to get it, people will leave or quit your organization based on how they were respected and treated during this pandemic. 100%. And the other piece, too, is a control factor. You know, it was really easy for some companies to say, I hired you, ergo, I trust you to get your job done, manage and lead wherever the hell in the world you're sitting. There are other companies that always had people coming to the office because it was a control thing. They could watch them, they could see them, and they had to adjust. So as you just said so eloquently, once this fog lifts and whatever this new norm starts to be, in my opinion, it's gonna be a hybrid and the companies that succeed are the ones that are gonna say, hey, we're open, we're clean. If you wanna come in, come in. Yeah. You wanna work from home when you're safe, awesome. do that. But awesome. we, talk about these, we talk about these leaders that kind of have this old school, not even old school, this control mentality, and they're the ones that are not going to succeed moving forward. I mean, have you had any of these conversations with kind of these old school mindsets? Oh my gosh, you're reading my mind. I was talking with a CEO recently and he says, I can't, um, I'm worried about my people and whether they're being productive or not. And I said, I said to him straight up, I said, well, that's your fault. I said, if you're worried that your people aren't productive, then you didn't set the culture. You didn't create expectations. You didn't set measurables. I said, that thought's never crossed my mind. My people are working their hearts out. I said, what, what, is, what has happened with your leadership that you're concerned whether or not your people are being productive, that says more about you than it does your people. I, that's, that's, that, that's a point of reflection as a leader. It is. It is. I, I got other problems, but I've never never wondered once are the people reporting to me productive at home because we've set standards. We're clear on the outcomes. We know what the critical success factors are, right? I don't care if they're working 20 hours a day or four hours a day, their job is to get it done. next done. You hired someone because you trust them. Scott, how do you how do you keep that level of culture that you spend so hard to build within an organization alive remotely? Yeah, people, there's, an, there's another HR adage I'll, I'll um, dismiss. Leaders don't create engagement. You hear this all the time. Leaders create the conditions for others to choose their own level of engagement, high or low. So when I have one-on-one -on -one meetings every week, I don't miss them. I don't skip them. I don't delay them. They're sacred. I do 20% of the talking. 
The other person does, like I, like, I monitor myself, right? I'm very thoughtful to listen in, to show empathy, to ask questions. Don't rush in and save the day. How is it going? How are you feeling? How can I help you? What is it like to work for me? How are your, how's your career going? How can I help you? Leaders create the conditions whereby your team members choose a low level or high level of engagement. Ask yourself, what conditions am I creating virtually to make sure that my team, the team I lead, chooses a high level of engagement? That's big. Scott, have you hired anybody during the last eight months remotely? I have. I won. won. And, what's, and, what's, and what was that experience like to not be able to sit physically with somebody, feel their body language, feel their energy, shake his or her hand? What was that experience like? rocked my world. I, I just gave a speech oh. to a major German um, tool and appliance company to figure it out. I gave a keynote to their top 30 people. And the CEO on the, on, the, on, the, on the keynote, is a virtual keynote, said he's just hired four six-figure executives in the last month. And the first time in his entire career, he was in his 60s. I never met them once. And he, and he was saying, this is the new reality. This isn't going away in four weeks or in six months, right? You're going to have to trust more. You're going to have to set clarification, declare your intent, and then trust. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to feel it. You're gonna, you're gonna have to trust it and, it and it's tremendous. So let's bring it home here. On every one of my episodes, I ask a few questions and this is my masterclass, right? I mean, 115 shows, I've had some tremendous leaders like yourself on and for me, I don't read much anymore. I got two small kids and, and I really don't have that much downtime and I really need to devote more time to reading, but this show is really for me. I mean, it really is, you know, selfishly, I talk about it. This is my masterclass and I love to ask these questions. Scott, what is the single greatest piece of advice that you've ever received that you take action on every single day? You can't talk yourself out of a problem you behaved yourself into. You can <laughs> only behave yourself out of it. I'm laughing at that one. I think my wife would, I'm gonna re replay that for her later. I think she would, she would vouch for that one. Do you repeat it every day, like, or is it kind of like that little devil and angel on your shoulders? Oh no, it's on, it's my Jiminy Cricket. And I, I, don't, I don't really rise to the occasion but I'll ask myself, am I trying to talk myself out of a problem that I behaved myself into? Or am I willing to show the humility and the transparency to apologize for without excuses and in fact behave my way out? What's your favorite interview question to ask somebody? Do you have like a go-to? Like I have a you couple, know, get, you're about to get them, but do you have a couple of go-tos? Yeah, yeah, I don't, I tend to, I tend to open my interviews wanting to learn about their journey like you did with me. I think it's I think it's so instructive to know how does someone become a Pulitzer Prize winning author? How did how someone become the chief brand officer? How did someone become, you know, a number one best-selling like Rachel Hollis? How did Rachel Hollis sell 30 million books last it's year? It's a journey to get there. And the journey, it's always the same. They worked their ass off. There's and no all you see, all you see is them on Good Morning America, but you don't see the 25 years behind them, right? There are no such thing as overnight success. You see the tip of the iceberg. You don't see under yeah. the waterline. I that's mean, it. I mean, and, that, and that's really it. And, 25 and years of Franklin Covey, right? 25 years behind the scene. So right. talking about those 25 years, what would you say is your greatest professional accomplishment? Oh, um, is the person that I hired 21 years ago is now the president and COO. He surpassed me by degrees of magnitude. I now report to him. That's way. So definitely. I had a junior, I had a junior employee who was like my prodigy, and he's followed my career until he did this. 
And now my biggest accomplishment is that I report to him and I have weekly meetings where I ask for permission to do things from him. That's He's some, younger than I am by five years. It's, that's some it's Star Wars stuff right humiliating there. and <laughs> no. validating. No, it's humiliating and it's validating. That's tremendous. I mean, that's real leadership to be humble enough to say, I trained you. You want to you want to surround yourself with better people. You want to train people and give them the tools to surpass. Like, that's what it's all about, man. That's well, legacy. It's easier said in a podcast. It of can be humiliating, it. right? I mean, this guy is now my boss. Scott, when I say the word legacy, what does that mean to you? I mean, you're 52 years old. You got a couple of kids. Like, you've been working for a while. You look back. What's that legacy that you want to leave? How do you well, want to remember? Yeah, my legacy is with my three sons. Um, I, you know, I care about my professional legacy, but you know, your work is your career. Your career isn't your life. And too often we get caught up in that, especially in a capitalistic society. I was single till I was 41. So my career defined me. My career defined me. And then I got married. We had three sons. And now my legacy is my marriage and my, and my three boys, launching them well into the world as contributing gentlemen that are respectful it. to women that honor their promises. My legacy is not my career. My legacy is my family. I love that, man. I always say my legacy, I want to leave the world a better place than I found it. And for me and my wife, that's the two children that we created and empowering them with all those pieces. I love it. I like to end the show on a positive note. And I'm going to ask you over the last eight months, if you could share a personal silver lining and a professional silver lining. I'm not on mute. I'm just being thoughtful. The professional silver lining is that I've seen so many people disrupt and, and reinvent their brands, right? I mean, people are forced right now to get extremely innovative and creative and find niches and find opportunities and really try things. I'm so impressed with the personal disruption going on, people choosing to act or be acted upon. So I, I'm seeing that everywhere, people trying new things. So intoxicating. Personally, uh, you know, I'm less concerned with what kind of car I'm driving. I'm less concerned with whether or not my, you know, my cufflinks are matching my glasses today. I'm more concerned making sure my kids are safe. We have food at the table. The heat is on. I've become humbled, recognizing how much pain is out there and people that are really struggling. And so I've become more grateful for what I have and less obsessed or focused on what I don't. Powerful. And, and last but not least, you know, you, you look back at your life and you look back at your career, the ups, the downs, the triumphs, those times when you had to dig down deep inside and, and harness that inner tenacity to pull yourself forward. And then the whisk story, telling your story to yourself, looking at your three kids, being grateful that you're healthy, successful. You got a roof over your head. You got a beautiful, awesome wood bookcase behind you. I kid, but in serious, seriously, what is your compass, Scott Miller? What is your North Star? Well, I'm a religious person. I was raised Catholic, and I am Catholic, and I choose to be Catholic. I've had a great run there. And my wife is not, but we're raising our three boys Catholic. So I believe that I was created for a reason. Like anybody of faith, I question that and struggle with it and choose to recommit. And so I believe that I was put in the purpose to do something. I'm 52. I'm not quite sure what that is. I'm often annoyed by people who know their purpose. I'm not quite sure what my mission is. I'm increasingly um, aligning to the fact that my job is to raise these three boys with my wife and, and, and turn them out into the world to make it a better place, like you said. 
So my North Star is that I believe I was created for a reason. And my path is to either uncover it, discover it, or at some point, just create it. I love it. Scott Miller, thank you for spending your afternoon with us on the podcast. I appreciate Adam, you're it. a superb interviewer. I'm glad we're friends. And I'm happy to hook you up with uh, Stephanie McMahon and in the professional sense, because her husband is a badass wrestler. <laughs> Triple H will kick the crap out of me. Um, exactly. Scott, where can folks find you? Where can they connect with you? Where can they learn more? You know what? It's hard not to find me. Google Scott Miller. Uh, would love to have you connect to me on LinkedIn. And uh, if you uh, do so, I'd, I'd be happy to send you a card, um, the card deck with the book Management Mess. There's a physical card deck of all 30 challenges. You connect to me. Send me your physical mailing address and I'll ship you out a free card deck. I'm going to take you up on that offer and I'm going to send you some podcast stickers and buttons because I, I, right. I don't have, I have swag, man. I got swag. You see this cool little logo? We got that. Scott, yeah. thank you so much for joining us and everyone Thanks. listening, everyone joining us on the audio version. Thank you. And you know where to find more, www.thepodcast.com. You know all of our social channels. Remember, take care of each other, wash your hands, stay six feet apart and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Pausecast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>